Hey, I want to welcome all of you here. Again, my name is Eric. I am our high school and student ministries pastor here. I want to welcome everyone joining us online at our campuses. Uh, we're so glad that you're here with us this morning. A uh, few quick announcements real quick. First one is this. Um, so many of you, I mean, this church is just full of generous, amazing people. And so many of you have been so generous to us as a family. As many of you know, uh, our almost two-year-old daughter, Brinley, has uh, just, just completed her second open heart surgery. Uh, and the first one was devastating and painful for us. And the second one was as well, but you as a church just rallied around us. So I want to show you a picture of Bryn, show you how she's doing. Uh, yeah, she is just awesome, doing so well. Uh, this photo was taken about a week after uh, surgery, and so she is just so excited to get back to church uh, in the next few weeks. Second thing I want to say is you are such a generous church to our student ministries. Uh, a few months ago, I got up here and I just announced that we were sending students to winter camp so that the people, the students that you know could get signed up. Um, we didn't ask for money at all. We just shared that we're going, and you all as a church believe so deeply in student ministries and what we're doing uh, that you actually raised four thousand dollars of scholarships to send kids to camp. So give it up for you guys. We really, really appreciate that. Uh, and that came from some of our spiritual grandparents and many of you as well. And so I want to show you a photo of actually uh, a service that we did called Generations, where we invited all of our spiritual grandparents, our students, our leaders together uh, to worship. And it was just phenomenal. So thank you for being a church that believes in students. Thank you for being a church um, that believes in what we're doing. Speaking about belief. The Gospel of John is where we will continue our study. Pastor Glenn is walking us through chapter by chapter by chapter. And I want to remind us of what is the purpose of the Gospel of John. So if you're coming in, and this may be your first time at church, uh, I think this morning's message uh, is going to impact you. And I think that my hope is, is if maybe you've been distant from God for a while, that you realize, man, he loves you. That even if you feel like an outsider, he is all about you and he wants you on the inside. He wants you to be in relationship with him. But maybe if you've been here for a while and, and you've gotten kind of comfortable in Christendom. You've got comfortable remaining in your holy huddle. My hope is that this morning you are challenged to step out. And so the gospel of John is written with that intention. John chapter 20, verse 30, the apostle says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written, meaning what is told in the gospel of John is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, God's deepest desire is that as you encounter him in scripture, that you would be full of belief that what he says is true and what he's done, he really has done, and that it would so infuse your life that you would be infectious out in the world, that you would literally live eternal life, not just when you die someday, but that right now you would begin living your eternal life, that there would be something remarkably different about you because you believe in Jesus Christ. And so before we jump into John chapter four, I wanna back us way up because what Jesus is gonna do this morning is incredibly offensive. That the, the interaction we're gonna see between Jesus and this woman, it's offensive for us. And back in the day, it would have been nearly impossible. In fact, people were probably turned away from how Jesus treated this woman. And so in order for us to understand what Jesus did, I want us to back up. First, I want to back up to Genesis chapter one. It's the first book in the Bible and it opens with this idea that in the beginning, God 
created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God was there and he created all things. And as he's creating planets and light and moon and as he's creating plants and animals, he says, this is good. And then he decides to create humanity and he says, we will create them in our image. Meaning that the purpose of these people's existence would be that in everything they do, they reflect me. And so in the beginning, God created the world and John wants us to understand that Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's not just a nice guy. He's not just a a smart rabbi. No, no, no. This Jesus is God with us. John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And so Jesus is with God in the beginning because Jesus is God. And then verse 14, it says, what did this God decide to do? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You see, every other religion in the world is telling this story. If you read this, if you do this, if you avoid that, If you say these prayers, go to these places. If you grow up in this neighborhood, if you have this kind of money, if you you meditate, whatever it may be, that if you do this, God will love you. And that eventually you will climb the ladder high enough to where you are in the presence of God. And so your life is one big journey upwards of you trying to earn your way to God. And then the gospel is an entirely different story. It is an entirely better story. And it's the story of a God who was in the beginning and who created the world and who looks at his people and says, I love them. I created them to reflect me. I desire to be known by them. I desire for intimacy with them. And maybe some of you here this morning, you need to hear this, that that God who sits in heaven looks at you and says, I want so badly to be in a relationship with you that our God, the gospel, is that God came down the ladder And he made his home among us. That he set up shop here. So when we read about what this Jesus is doing here, this isn't just some renegade. It's not just some rebel. It is God who left heaven for his people. God who left heaven because he so desires intimacy with you. And so he finds himself on planet earth. But here's the question. Does God actually want a relationship with you? Like, are you included in that? Because there may be some of you that you hear this and you go, no, no, no. If God knew what I've been through, if God knows what I've done, if God could really see what's going on, there is no way that he wants to be in a relationship with me. I need to climb the ladder to try to convince him. There's no way that me being an outsider, that God could ever want me on the inside. And it reminded me of that Halloween that Sarah and I 
participated in, and maybe something I'll never participate in again, which is a costume party. I don't know if you have ever been to a costume party before, but Sarah had this play performance, my wife, and, and, and it was the final night, it was on Halloween, and so they were doing this ginormous cast party, and they said, we're going to make this a giant Halloween costume party, everybody dress up, it's going to be so much fun, and so Sarah and I begin brainstorming, well, what should we be for this party? And, and these are like actor types, I don't know if you know actor types, but it's like, you really want to impress these people, and you want to make sure that like, you know, you look as good as they do, maybe better. And so I'm thinking, okay, what can we do? And so Sarah and I start talking about it and she goes, well, what if we are King Kong and Anne? And I'm like, there's some problems here, right? Like number one, Anne is just a beautiful woman, which my, which my wife is. King Kong is a gorilla, right? Like, like just a, this ginormous gorilla. And she goes, but Eric, don't you have a gorilla suit? And I'm like, I'm a good youth pastor. Of course I have a gorilla suit. So I say, we can do this. We can pull this off. And this gorilla suit is like this all encompassing costume where it's just so hairy and it's just this hot costume. And so we decide we're gonna go to the Halloween costume party as King Kong and Anne. I remember we got in the car and I had, I had the gloves on. I had the, the, I don't know what you call them, feet on. And, and I had the costume on and I'm just sweating. And I remember I, underneath I had like just shorts and a tank top just because it was so hot in there. And so I'm driving the car and I remember people just kind of looking at me like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with you, right? And I probably had like a Easter at Fairplex sticker. You know what I mean? And they're like, not coming to that. And so anyways, I'm just kind of like driving there doing my own thing. And I remember we get out of the car and I put on the mask. And I remember the mask had like these little eye holes that I could kind of barely see. And so I put the mask on and, and I got the gloves on and the feet and the whole costume. And we start walking in and I'm holding Sarah's hand and all of a sudden we open the door. Guess how many people decided to dress up for this costume party? One, me, one. That's it. That was it. That just just one, 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 one idiot. You know what I mean? And I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm literally dressed up and I look to my right and I'm like, oh, Sarah is a mile away from me. Uh, you know, she's hanging out and it's literally just me there. And I never in my life have felt more like an outsider. I'm sitting there and I'm going, everybody gets it. Everybody's so tight knit. And here I am on the outside. You know what's painful to me is that there's some people in this room right now who when I tell that story, if I relate it to church, you say, oh, I feel that same way. I feel like everyone else is dressed up. I feel like everyone else has got it all together. I feel like everyone else knows each other and here I am on the outside. Maybe for some of you, you think about your neighbors. You think about the people you work with. You think about the people that you literally are passing all the time. Maybe you go to the same Starbucks every single day and it's that, that person or that group of people that for a long time you said, we want nothing to do with those people. Well, Jesus, Jesus has this, this brilliant idea of breaking down these prejudices and these stereotypes. That Jesus has this ginormous vision to come to your neighborhood, to come to your work, to come to your group of friends, to come to that group of people that you as a Christian would never want to associate with. And he wants to use you to reach them. You see, because Jesus did not create you for comfort. He created you for purpose. Do not, Christians, do not settle for a comfortable life. Because Jesus didn't settle for a comfortable life. No, no, no. He set, he, he set a vision. And he set an expectation that we would live lives full of purpose. In order to kind of set this up, I need to paint a picture 
of a, of a tension between two groups of people. And it'll help you understand this story a little better. And the two groups of people are Jews and Samaritans. Let me quickly give you this, this overview of this history of this group of people. There has been tension for this group of people for over 600 years before Jesus and this woman ever interact with each other. And so there's this, there's this tension, there's this hatred, there's this built up animosity. We don't talk to them, they don't talk to us kind of life between Jews and Samaritans. And you see with this, with this group where the division began is actually back in Genesis chapter 37 where you got, jo- you got Jacob and he, and he has this son Joseph whom he loves and Joseph ends up being sold into slavery and later on in Jacob's life, when Jacob is an old man, him and Joseph are reunited and he says something to the effect of, there will be a well for you. That in the, in the land where God is taking you, there will be a well. And what he's talking about is Jacob's well, which we're going to find out about in this story, which sits at Mount Gerizim. Now, Mount Gerizim is in Samaria territory. Well, in the life of Israel, there uh, becomes this moment where there's a separation in the kingdoms. And there are these two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is where Samaria is. And so all of a sudden, in the year 722 BC, the Assyrians invade the northern kingdom. And they take about half of the Israelites and they deport them. And then with them, they bring in some Gentiles. They bring in some Samaritans is what we'll end up calling them. They bring in some groups of people who don't understand Yahweh, who don't understand God. And so there's this infusing of religions and of life. And what ends up happening is this group of people begins to not follow Yahweh as closely as they were, but there's still kind of this remnant. And then in the year 600 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, they invade the Southern kingdom, which is where Jerusalem is, which is where a place called Mount Moriah is. And they take this group of people and they deport them back to Babylon, but they leave some there. And 70 years later, as it's recorded in, John, in uh, Jeremiah 29, that remnant comes back to Mount Moriah, to where Jerusalem is, and they decide to rebuild the temple. And in this year, the Samaritans, they travel down. Some of this remnant, some of this group of people who vaguely have this idea of Yahweh, they travel down to Israel and they say, They travel down to Jerusalem and they say, we would like to help rebuild this temple. It's recorded in Ezra chapter four. We'd like to rebuild this temple. And the Jews say, no way. You have no part with us. We don't want you to help at all. And so the Jews reject the Samaritans and the Samaritans begin then terrorizing the Jews. And it begins this 600 years of hatred between these two groups of people. And this story begins forming that the Samaritans tell where they say, the temple, the original temple, and Abraham and Isaac, that all happened at Mount Gerizim. And, and the Jews, they say, no, 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 no. The temple was originally built in Jerusalem and, and the place where Abraham and Isaac were sacrificed was in Jerusalem. And so there's these competing narratives and there's stories being told over and over again. And then in the year 110, a group of political Jews and the high priest, they ransack Samaria. They go to Mount Gerizim, this holy place for the Samaritans, and they destroy their temple. So for 600 years, their story said, we don't talk to those people. We don't associate with them. They're evil. Avoid them. Don't talk to them. Stay away from those. So for 600 years, there's tension And then Jesus shows up on the scene and he comes with a mission to save the world. And for some reason, us Christians have believed that Jesus has come to save the world, but it is our job to run away from the world. 
We've believed for far too long that if we remain in our holy huddles, if we protect ourselves and keep secure, if we stay away from, from everyone who is outside, that that is ultimately God's purpose and plan for us. And yet Jesus came to save the world and he's inviting you to participate in that adventure, in that purpose. And so this morning, as we jump into John chapter four, my hope is that you relate a little bit with this woman, that you recognize, you know, you were an outsider, that you were not a part of God's family and he brought you in. And if you've been brought in, maybe it's your job to bring others in. I'm gonna ask you a question at the close of this sermon that I hope haunts you, that I hope challenges you, that I hope compels you to eat your lunch and your dinner differently, to drive into your neighborhoods differently, to interact with soccer moms differently, to interact as a boss or as an employee differently in light of this question. And we'll get there at the end, but first we have to look at four strategies, four strategies that Jesus implements to reach the outsider. And if you're taking notes, you need to cross out the title. I made a mistake on the title. Uh, This is the title for this morning's message. Worship, everyone is invited to this party. Worship, everyone is invited to this party. Check out these strategies Jesus implements. John chapter one, the first strategy is Jesus takes the first step. So how does Jesus reach out to the outsider? How does he reach out to you and me? How is he inviting us to reach out? He takes the first step. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. This is really, really important. He's in Judea. He's headed up to Galilee. And all of a sudden, some church gossip begins. All of a sudden, some people are complaining about, well, the lights are too bright, or the music was too quiet, or it was too loud, or why'd they paint it that way? Or I mean, they, they kind of begin this whole, they're trying to stir up some of this gossip and dissension. And Jesus says, you know, I, I don't have time for that. We have a purpose. We have a place we're going. We can't waste our time squabbling and fighting with one another and arguing because there is a people to reach. And so Jesus leaves Judea, and he's head to Galilee. Remember that, we're gonna circle back to that at the end. Now he had to go through Samaria, verse four. This is really interesting because he did not have to go through Samaria, actually. That I think this was an intentional move on Jesus' part. He did not have to go through Samaria because there was actually two ways to get from Judea to Galilee. And the good Jewish boy way would have been to head over to Jericho to follow the Jordan River up and then go into Galilee, which would be to totally avoid Samaria because for 600 years... We don't associate with those people. But Jesus takes the shorter route and the more intentional route. It's a three-day journey from Judea to Galilee, but you gotta go straight through Samaria. Just thinking about this right now, how many of us spend so much energy and time taking the longer route to avoid the people God has called us to? How many of us spend countless dollars and energy and time saying, I will go all the way over here so I don't have to talk to that person? Jesus isn't interested in that. I love this about Jesus. He's all adventurous. He's like, I'm going after it. And so what he does, he, he, he takes the first step. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sichar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So this is Mount Gerizim. Jacob's well was there. 
And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Here's what you need to know about water culture back then. That when it came to drawing out water, that was a task done mostly by women and it was a communal affair that happened in the mornings and in the evenings. It was partly because there was some socializing happening, but really the more important reason why you would do it in the mornings and in the evenings is because you, weren't, you didn't want to be out in the middle of the day. It was too hot to be carrying back all this water. And so women would gather in the mornings and they would gather in the evenings to collect water for their families. So it's noon and Jesus shows up to this well and nobody should be there. It's the worst time to be there. But a Samaritan woman was there and she came to draw water. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. You see, Jesus is doing the unspeakable here. You see, Jesus is in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong person and he decides to strike up a conversation with this woman at the well. And he says, so humbly, Will you give me a drink? You see, the racial tension between these two groups of people was so thick that, that part of what the Greek is what the New Testament is written in, part of what it's drawing out in the words it's using is that not only did they not associate with each other, but they didn't even use the same utensils. That it would have been offensive for Jesus who did not have a jar to use the jar of a Samaritan woman that there was such a stark difference, so much pain between these two groups of people. And yet Jesus so humbly says, will you give me a drink of water? See, I love Jesus here because he's the example to us of what he's done for us, right? He took the first step towards us. He came down the ladder. We didn't climb up. And if we tried, we didn't get very far, but he came down to us. And then he invites you and I to be bold. He invites you and I to take the first step with that outsider with that person who is not in relationship with Jesus. That he doesn't, he doesn't wait for the Samaritan to come to his house. He goes. He doesn't wait for the Samaritan to achieve this or that. He said, no, I will, I will take the initiative. And so though Jesus is in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong person, he takes the initiative. The second thing Jesus does is he doesn't talk about the weather. I love this, man. There's so much temptation when you interact with somebody that is so different from you to just be like, El Nino, who do you think? Right? There's this temptation to just, to just shoot the breeze with people. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't choose to talk about the weather Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. You see, two times here, we're gonna see Jesus offers her something. He says to her, there is a gift of God and it's for you. That, that two times he is a blessing to her. Let me ask you Christians, to your non-Christian friends, are you a blessing or are you a burden? That are you somebody that when you walk in the room, people go, man, I want to be near that person. Man, that person makes me feel better. Man, that person loves people well. Or when you walk in the room, are you like the plague? You know what I mean? Like, like are people like, I got to get as far away from that person as possible. You see, here Jesus, he says something to this woman that she would have never dreamed he would have said. He said, if you knew who I was, 
If you knew what God was really all about, you would know that there is a gift for you. And it's eternal life. He invites her into this. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So he's saying, as long as you're understanding your life as revolving around whatever your history has been, or whatever your limitations are, or whatever people have said about you, or whatever differences there are between you and this person, you will continue to go back to that well and you will continue to be thirsty because you were not created for division and for isolation and for broken relationships. You were created for eternal life. And part of believing in Jesus and experiencing eternal life now is to look around at the people who you used to say, we don't talk to those people and say, we gotta go after them now. We got to invite them into our homes. We got to love and serve these people because Jesus loved and served us. But then Jesus doesn't talk about the weather. He's bold. And he actually confronts her on some, some stuff in her life. You see, I'm convinced our world doesn't want Christians to just kind of keep the peace. I think they want us Christians to be bold. But do it in a way like Jesus does where he's offering her something good and loving. And then the conversation turns to what's going on in her personal life. And Jesus is not afraid to go there. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. See, Jesus is honest with her about her sin and her brokenness. Being a Christian doesn't mean that we just say what people want us to hear. It means we offer the good news and are honest about the bad news. But you know what? Let me turn this on as Christians for a little bit. I think maybe in the media or maybe in certain friend circles or maybe around the world, you know how I think some people see Christians? As we're afraid to be honest about our brokenness. Here's this woman who kind of tells this half truth to Jesus, right? She says, you know, I, I don't have a husband. She didn't say, well, I'm, I'm sleeping with this guy and I've, I've had five other, she didn't tell him the honest story. She kind of gives him half truth. And I think as Christians, maybe we've done that for too long where we've kind of given this, this impression or this reputation that we're perfect and the world is going, you're not perfect. I see your brokenness. I see what's going on in your life. And we've kind of avoided that. And what it's created in us as Christians is such an easy ability to escape, such a tendency To say, you know what, I, I, don't, I don't really struggle. I don't really have anything going on. I'm not broken, I'm fine. Or maybe we blame. Maybe we say, I made that decision because of her or because of him. Or I spent my money there because of the family I grew up in. You see, I think of Peter's example in the gospel where Peter, is, Peter and Jesus are having this conversation and Jesus says, look, bud, when they take me away and they arrest me, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter says, no way, I would never do that. And then Peter finds himself by this fire. They've taken Jesus away. The threat level is high. 
And this group of people say, hey, don't you know Jesus? Don't you know Jesus? Don't you know Jesus? And Peter says, I don't know the guy. I don't know the guy. And then this rooster crows. And Peter remembers what Jesus said. And you know what Peter does? He doesn't say, well, I was just in a bad mood. He doesn't say, I I was just nervous. Or, God, you don't understand. I had a tough home life. No, no, he doesn't say any of that. The text says, Peter wept. Christians, is your sin bothering you? Christians, when you think about the decisions you're making that are separating you from this holy God who came down the ladder and wants a relationship with you, is your sin bothering you because it should? And not so that you would feel guilty, but so that as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. And so when Jesus is honest with you, when he's saying, Eric, I don't want to talk about the weather with you. I want to get real about what's going on in your life. Are you so quick to avoid, like I am so quick to avoid or deflect or blame? When if we would just say, Jesus, I recognize your good news and I recognize that I'm broken. Maybe we would be led into repentance and we would experience true salvation. Not the kind that we create that's based on our church attendance but the kind that God has given us freely in his son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus doesn't really want to talk about the weather. Strategy number three, Jesus invites the outsider in. I love this part in the story. Jesus invites this outsider in, and he says it this way, verse 21, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the father, when you will worship. Do you hear that? He didn't say a time will come if you do X, Y, and Z. He said, no, a time will come when you will be able to worship the Father, when when this invitation to be in a relationship with God is extended to you, even though we've had 600 years of baggage, you are invited to the party, that you are invited to worship God, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So Jesus is saying it's not about an exclusive place or an exclusive group of people or an exclusive experience. No, no, this is bigger than that. That you are invited to worship God in spirit and truth. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. All he's saying here is he's saying, look, you, you gotta understand that God wants you to know him as he really is that beginning with the Jews meant to be a light to the rest of the world, that God has shown up, that he is your father as he's gonna say, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Here's what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, you have a heavenly father and he wants you to know him. He doesn't want you to call him anything else. He doesn't want you to kind of search out your own way to find him. No, no, he has revealed himself to you and he wants you to worship him in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? This idea of truth means that God actually wants you to know who he is. He doesn't want you to just make up things about him. He wants you to get to know him from Genesis to Revelation. Realize that he is so full of love and grace and truth and worship him in spirit, which the Greek word for spirit is pneuma, which another translation for that word could be breath. What if God's deepest desire for you is that you would be so overwhelmed by who he is, by his character, by what he has done for you that you can't help but worship him with every breath. That every step you take, 
every place you go, every conversation you have, everywhere you find yourself where you are breathing that you can't help but worship him. Which raises some questions. Who are you worshiping? A great way to answer that is, is what can't you live without? What can't you live without? Is it food? Is it money? Is it success? Is it status? Is it a reputation? What is that thing that you can't live without? And here Jesus says, look, you've been trying to do this for a while. You've been drinking from this well. You've been living in this paradigm that there's those people that God doesn't want anything to do with. Jesus wants to break all that down and say, worship is so much bigger than that. Worship is something that every single person is invited into. That in spirit and in truth, knowing who the Father is, we are invited to live our lives in response to that God. To live in response to who God is. Fourth and final strategy. It ends up happening that this woman is just totally blown away by what Jesus is saying. And and she decides to go back into her village. So she's had this encounter with God that's been so powerful that now she feels like she can go back into her village. And so she goes back into her village. And she says, you gotta come meet this guy. You gotta come meet this guy. And, And then they catch Jesus talking with his disciples. And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And so Jesus right there is saying in the presence of his disciples and all these people, hey, God's will is that I would be here to save and redeem you all. Everyone is invited. And then in verse 39, the fourth strategy Jesus implements is he is patient with the outsider. Jesus is patient with the outsider. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged Jesus to stay with them and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. You see, Jesus was on the fast track from Judea to Galilee and yet he pauses and he stays for two days and he remains with them. You see, Jesus is patient with the outsider. What if God's game plan is to reach you, to reach the outsider, to reach the world? Like what if, what if, what if God's dream is that that neighbor that you live next to, that man, they play music way too loud and they're constantly a disturbance and you hear them saying words under your breath that you'd never want your kids to hear. What if if God's dream is that the eternal life would be welling up inside of you so much that those neighbors would see you and they would say, Jesus, God must be, or there's something different about that person. What if God wanted you to be patient with them and to build a relationship with them and actually have them over in your home and as they're walking in, you just got brand new carpet and all of a sudden they're coming in with their boots and they're getting mud everywhere and something in you says, get out, get out, get out. And yet you remember Jesus never said get out to you. He said, come on in. Come on in. And that as you build relationships with these people, what if Jesus wants to reach them? We had some, uh, when, when we first moved into our house, um, we had a, a neighbor come over to our house and this neighbor brought us a cake. She, she clearly knew the way to my heart. It's this beautiful, amazing chocolate cake. I love to eat. And she, she, hands, she hands us this chocolate cake and she's like, hey, I heard you're a pastor. 
I'm like, well, this is going well. This is not usually what people feel when they find out I'm a pastor. And so I'm like, yeah, I'm a pastor. And she's like, hey, oh, we're so glad you're in this neighborhood. But she, and this person was like, we got to tell you though. We, uh, you know, this part, this neighborhood is full of people who like to party. It, it, it's, there's, there's people in this neighborhood who aren't Christians, who, who don't love God. And then this person said, so I, I've made this decision that I'm just, you know, me and my family, man, when it comes to holidays, and this community likes to party, or when it comes to events, and, and we know what's going to go on there, we just decide to leave town. We decide to just get out. I was holding the cake. I remember she shut the door, and Sarah and I looked at each other, and I said, what a bummer. What a bummer. And then a week ago, we had uh, some neighbors over. Awesome, awesome couple. We love them. Um, they don't, they're not in a relationship with God. They don't know about how much Jesus loves them. They haven't, they haven't entered that journey yet, but, but we had them over, and you know what? They brought us dinner. <laughs> the weight of my heart. They brought us more food. They brought us Vince's, and it was so good. And we were sitting there, and we were eating it together, and we were at the table. And they asked me a question. They said, so why'd you become a youth pastor? And I got to share with them about Jesus. I got to share with them about the difference he's made in my life. And then we got to talk about they're going through a certain kind of suffering and pain. There's some cancer in their family. And so we got to talk about what it's been like to suffer. And they know about Brinley and they've been so supportive and amazing. And I remember telling them, I got to say this week, I got to say, you know what? You know what's so, you know what I love about the Bible? Like I'm having dinner with these people who don't know about God. And I said, you know what I love about the Bible is it's full of stories of people who are suffering. That even Jesus came and he suffered. That God does not run away from suffering people. He runs towards suffering people. And then the dad told us, he said, you know, the craziest thing happened. As I was beginning our first operation where they were looking at some brain tumors and cancer going on. He said, I remember I was so nervous. And as I was about to go into surgery, he said it was just him. And immediately, he felt these hands over his head. And he said he felt like these hugs. And he said he felt like something, as he would describe it, right? Something was just there, that that he just wasn't alone. He gets out of surgery, and he tells one of his Christian friends, he has one Christian friend, he tells him what was going on, he goes, he goes, buddy, his Christian friend says, you gotta know, there were so many of us praying for you at that moment, You see, God is showing up in our neighbor's lives. God is showing up in the people's lives and he's maybe just waiting for us to share with them about this Jesus and let them know that they are invited to the party. Are you risking your reputation? Are you risking what your other neighbors or your friends might say about you for the sake of the gospel? Are you reaching out to the outsider and bringing them in? Because, you know, we have a guy on staff who's our junior high pastor, Adrian. This guy I love. He's amazing. But you know, he didn't grow up in the church. His family didn't grow up Christians. But somebody said to him, hey, you should come to church when he was a student. They said, hey, you should come to church. Hey, you should come to our youth group. Come to our youth group. They invited and they invited and they invited. Finally, he comes to youth group, gets his world rocked, meets Jesus, begins to invite his brothers and sisters who they encountered Jesus in a powerful way. They're reminded that they are brought on the inside. They're no longer outsiders. He brings his parents, grandparents, and all of a sudden this whole family is now serving here at this church, making a huge difference because some friends of his got really bold. And they were patient with him. 
And so here's the question I wanna close with. Who in your life is one invite away? Just think about the coworkers, the boss, the friends, the neighborhood, the sports teams, the activities that you're a part of. And maybe you've gotten real comfortable in your holy huddle. But if you need to understand anything, it's that Jesus is wanting to ask you, who is one invite away? And would you be bold? Would you stop talking about the weather? Would you get real with people? Would you invite the outsider in? Begin to build relationships and would you be patient with them? And watch how God does the impossible right in front of your face. So who in your life is like the woman at the well? Because you were the woman at the well. I was the woman at the well who Jesus brought in. Who's the woman at the well in your life? Who in your life is one invite away? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this story that has been incredibly convicting for me this week. Jesus, I pray that that as the Holmstrom family, we would get better and better and better about noticing the outsider and recognizing that there is this party that they are invited to and you want to use me. You want to use us. So God, would you help us to be willing to believe that you might want to reach us to reach the outsider, to reach the world. God, protect us from running away from the world when you have called us to love and serve and be agents of reconciliation in the world. So God, right now as we leave and as we go about our days and our weeks and interact with all the people that we interacted with last week, would you put in our mind who is that one person that is one invite away and would we be bold this week and invite them to church, to community and ultimately into a relationship with you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.